Hello, and welcome back to GemCast. My name is Christina Shenby, and I am joined by such a cool person today who is calling me in from Basel, Switzerland. I'm here with Christian Nickel. Christian, welcome. Thanks for welcoming me and having me. Uh, I'm honored and also humbled a little bit. Christian is Vice Chair of Emergency Medicine at Basel University in Switzerland. Now, Christian, I didn't tell you this before, but I have been to Basel once a long time ago in my other life as a basic scientist to (laughs) to learn from some folks there about atomic force microscopy. And I did do a little bit of learning, but mostly I ate so much chocolate. And I don't don't know how you guys live there with so much amazing chocolate. But we're going to be talking about Christian's top 10 commandments or suggestions or top 10 tips for caring for older adults. So Christian, first of all, how did you get interested in geriatric emergency medicine and the care of older patients? I did my civil service instead of military service in an old people's home. And I saw so many fascinating people with so many great stories that they were willing to share with me. And but I also saw that the care of these older adults was less than optimal. How did you come up with your top 10 list? I asked friends, geriatricians, emergency physicians, about a list that I had created. And then I shared it with people from abroad. For example, Chris Carpenter, Don Malady, Simon Conroy from uh, Leicester in England, and they shared it. So it basically became an avalanche, and I got responses from all over the place. And then there was a second round, and I refined it, and finally created the top ten list. Perfect. Well, let's launch in. Number one. Biological age does not equal chronologic age. Tell me about that. I like to give the example of Pablo Casals, a famous cello player. He was asked why he still practiced the cello at his age, at age 90, by the way. And he answered, because I think I'm making progress. (laughs) Wow. Well, now imagine another 90-year-old man living with advanced dementia in a nursing home, bedridden. That's a totally different picture. So I want us to not base treatment decisions on acute disease burden alone, but also consider frailty status. How do you think about that practically on shift? Say when you have a patient who 87 or a 93-year-old patient who comes in, how does that affect your medical decision-making or your approach? I personally... I'm in the process of evaluating the clinical frailty scale. So we're testing a tool. I have found it to be incredibly useful. That's great. And actually, I know a number of places that are applying for geriatric ED accreditation are using frailty scores as one of their screening tools to help identify, as you said, the patients who will need more care or may need closer follow-up or things like that. The other way that I kind of think about it sometimes is what is their pre event function level or frailty level. So that 90-year-old who is highly functional, if they have an injury that's very different or uh, become septic, that's different from the 90-year-old who is bedbound and nonverbal at baseline. 
because their potential future outcomes are really never going to be better than their baseline function. And so that gives you at least a target of, okay, where are we going with this? And, and can inform conversations with family also. That's exactly right. And these frail older people tend to present in three distinct patterns. For example, with fluctuating disability, they will complain of weakness, falls, and acute confusion. This is helpful. If you see one, you have to look for the other two mm. and identify frail older patients. Tell me those three again. Falls, delirium, and fluctuating disability. Huh. So the patient will complain of weakness. Oh, that's great. I like that. So if you see one of those, look for the other. So if you see falls, look for delirium and fluctuating disability slash weakness. And if yes. you see delirium, look for falls and the fluctuating weakness. That's Absolutely. Great. They go together. As Simon Conroy would say, they hunt in herds. <laughs> they hunt in herds. And those, all three of those are what we call geriatric syndromes, which is something that we've talked about before on GEMCAST that are multifactorial accumulations of small deficits in many different systems that then lead to the syndromes of delirium or frequent falls, et cetera. Perfect. Well, let's move on to number two. Atypical is typical. Explain what you mean by that. I think a very popular example, and in fact, I heard it on your last podcast, is the atypical presentation of myocardial infarction. So the definition of atypical in the context of myocardial infarction would be the absence of chest pain. They have found in a big study, the Kanto study, there are certain very common atypical symptoms, such as dyspnea, weakness, altered mental status, abdominal pain, diaphoresis, nausea, syncope. One thing is important. This atypical disease presentation will increase with advancing age. Yes. Another example is pneumonia. Older patients might present more rarely with the typical symptoms of cough, fever, and sputum, for example. Mm -hmm. or, or these signs might be less obvious. Yes, they might not be able to mount a fever. They may not yes. mount a white count as well. And what's kind of interesting to me is the idea of the semantics of why do we call one thing typical and then therefore the other thing atypical. And I think it really has to do with how we defined and studied these disease entities. So for example, we defined a typical MI, which is what we teach in the textbook, to be that crushing substernal chest pain radiating to the left shoulder with diaphoresis, nausea, and dyspnea. And we defined it in the population mostly of men in the middle age. Many studies have excluded older patients, but then of course, who gets MIs? Well, certainly middle-aged men do, but primarily MIs are a disorder of the elderly. So really we should have defined it in the population in which it is most prevalent, and then perhaps not said typical or atypical, but said here's the range of ways that this can present. It's more commonly presents this way in this population and more commonly presents this other way in this other population. Because I think oftentimes we'll have older patients who have dyspnea or nausea and have some EKG changes, but if they don't have chest pain, then they're less likely from the data to go to the cath lab or they'll have delays in going to the cath lab or things like that. So it's very interesting to me how this has grown out to be, well, this is what's typical and what we teach. And then all these other people are exceptions when really in many ways they're the rule, not the exception. Yes. Maybe we need to rewrite our textbooks. 
I would agree with that. Um, number three, be a Euroskeptic. Well, that's something that is very important to me. Clinicians also here in my shop frequently use the presence of these nonspecific complaints, such as weakness or fatigue or an altered mental status, are in fact any complaint. It gets you know any com- patients with any complaint will get the diagnosis of a UTI. Unfortunately, we tend to empirically treat infection with antibiotics, and this is a problem. So I personally believe that we should use the UTI definition, urinary tract symptoms, urgency dysuria, clinical findings, like suprapubic tenderness, and the isolation of urinary pathogen. Mm-hmm. So waiting for the culture, if you can. If I you think, can. I think this is so important and also very tricky and nuanced in many cases because we say, oh yes, you shouldn't treat unless they have symptoms. But many patients who have incontinence or de- dementia or delirium can't articulate that, oh, they're having dysuria. They may just be a little bit more altered or more weak and dizzy or some of these other subjective things. And I think we have to be, we have to be cautious because we know of rising antibiotic resistance rates or complications with medication interactions if you're prescribing antibiotics and they're on Coumadin or something like that. The way I kind of approach it is if they look sick, I treat them. So any vital sign abnormalities or things like that that aren't clearly just dehydration. If the urine looks really terrible, then I treat them. I try to use the most conservative antibiotics that I can. Macrobid or nitrofurantoin is one that I use a lot. And that had for a long time a bad reputation in geriatrics because of some very sketchy data. I actually went back through and tried to find really where did this dogma come from that you can't use nitrofurantoin in older patients. And it's really very sketchy. And the latest recommendations from the last iteration of the beers list said, no, you can use it as long as the creatinine clearance is over 30. So I try to use nitrofurantoin or sometimes the one dose phosphomycin in women if I don't think it's a severe UTI or pyelonephritis or sepsis or anything like that. But then when possible, I agree, we should wait for the culture and really see if something grows out. And it's, it is difficult because I've seen both ways where somebody has not treated and waited for the culture, and then the patient has come back with worse sepsis. But I've also seen a lot of antibiotic prescriptions that probably weren't needed just for those five white cells in the urine or the couple of bacteria that were floating around in there that they may always have at baseline. I have the opposite experience. I see a lot of UTI mimics. I see the patient and he has status epilepticus and not UTI or or encephalitis. I would actually love to study UTI mimics. Hopefully this will ever get done. I want to point out one study by Jeff Caterino who showed that these nonspecific signs and symptoms did not increase the probability of bacterial infection on the Mm. one hand, and later urinary tract infection. Interesting. And I think there is the risk of anchoring or premature cognitive closure if we find a few white cells in the urine and we think, oh, they're just weak and dizzy because it's a UTI. And then we don't look further for actually, was there abdominal pain from 
perforated diverticulitis or appendicitis rather than just a little bit of UTI. So it's important to really think about it closely. So I like your term, be a Euroskeptic, because that implies we take it back from system one thinking of quick associative thinking that, oh, the urine has some abnormalities, all of this must be a UTI. And we take it down to system two thinking, which is our slow categorical thinking to say, okay, do all the pieces fit? And could it be anything else? The term is not created by me. I found it on Twitter. It's actually a Twitter hashtag. So you might want to check that out. Well, I know what I'm doing tonight. (laughs) Okay, number four, vital signs. Normal can be abnormal. Abnormal can be normal. Apparently, normal vital signs can be falsely reassuring. We need to be aware that the utility of vital signs in identifying critically ill older adults is limited. Also, we need to absolutely consider their uh, medication that they're on, like beta blockers or antihypertensive. So a temperature of 38 degrees or higher is often associated with bacterial infection, but the absence of fever does not rule out infection, for example. Similarly, typically there's a cutoff used for sepsis of 100 millimeter mercury. So Mm -hmm. above that is considered normal. But a beautiful study from the Netherlands has shown that actually 120 should be the new 100. Mm. For for older patients? With sepsis, yes. Mm -hmm. This is where the mortality risk increases. And you have quoted also another study in your last review from a few months ago in trauma, for example, the systolic blood pressure of 110 and a heart rate higher than 90 beats. So one thing that I find helpful is to check the baseline. So ask them, what's your normal blood pressure? And that has been helpful to me. I think that's great. And again, really takes us back from the system one to the system two thinking with older patients. So just to elaborate on that a little bit, if you're familiar with books like Blink or Thinking Fast and Slow, our system one is our quick associative thinking. So if I see a patient who's you know, coming in with a fever to 103 and a blood pressure of 80 and a heart rate of 140, boom, my system one thinking says, that's probably sepsis, right? Or a trauma patient who comes in with a blood pressure of 80. I think, okay, we're probably in hemorrhagic shock, most likely. Whereas with older patients, it might be that, oh, the temperature is 99. And people always say, you know, oh, my normal temperature is low, so 99 is a fever for me. Well, actually, in older patients, it kind of is. And, or their blood pressure is 118. Well, my blood pressure is usually under 118. So that's fine for me. But for somebody who's 75 and has hypertension, a blood pressure of 118 could actually be an early sign of decompensation or sepsis or shock in the case of trauma. So I think that's so critical. Yeah. And we need to be aware of this problem, especially at triage, at the front door. Mm -hmm. In our setting, we have observed under triage rates between 20 and 25% in older adults. Mm. And this was very stable. Even though we did interventions, we could not abolish this. Also, this was shown by another study by Michael LaMancha showing that in patients aged 75 and older, that vital signs at triage were not predictive of ICU admission or death. So 
we should not rely on vital signs alone for uh, risk stratification because we're going to miss a substantial portion of older adults at risk. I really think all of this literature just keeps me humble because all of the things that I thought I knew or that I learned in medical school, you know, they always say, well, 50% of what you learn in medical school will be wrong in five years. We just don't know which 50%. And I feel like a lot of that 50% had to do with the typical and atypical of older adults. So it keeps you humble. It does. But there's help. Uh, there, are <laughs> there are non-traditional vital signs, which leads us to number five. Yes. Number five, gait is a vital sign. I love that. Tell me about that. I suggest performing the road test. I don't know whether that's an established uh, term in your language. The yes. road Yep. We the can road test or walk or have yes. them, you know, walk around the department. In the beginning of the evaluation. Mm. So we have looked at this uh, in a study and in several studies, by the way, and we have found that impaired mobility is a very strong predictor of mortality risk. If there's a normal gait, normal mobility, you can identify low risk patients. And this is independent of the traditional vital signs, but also independent of age, by the way, and uh, comorbidities as measured by the Charleston Comorbidity Index, for example. So how do you operationalize this in your ED? I wish we did. We're trying. <laughs> or how would you? Let's We're give you your, your utopian medical center where everything is perfect. What would you do? Okay. So we use the triage system, the ESI, that's mm -hmm. widely used in yes. the States as well. So there's decision point D where you should take vital signs. And I would just add the information of mobility and mental status there. Then we could do a lot. To upgrade to an ESI level two from three to two, which mm -hmm. is the very, uh, very, very vulnerable portion of the ESI to upgrade to two, which is a patient who should not wait. This leads us really well into number six, which is there is no such thing as a mechanical fall and its subcorollary examine the feet in older patients. Well, yes, uh, falls are common in older folks, and I have been upset with the story of the lumpy rug. Do you hear the lumpy rug? <laughs> Why the, are all the rugs so lumpy? Or I don't know. the pajama pants that are too long, or the slippers that were too big. I know there's just it's a it's a pandemic now that I know it's in your country too I, it's just a worldwide pandemic of these lumpy rugs. I understand that and did you know that actually there's a lumpy rug day in the states? <laughs> no, no, there I, is not. There really? is. I I googled it and it's <laughs> May May third and I celebrate it because it's a great day to uh, to address ignored issues. Oh, that's fantastic. So tell us a little bit more about why it's not just the lumpy rug. Well, external factors can be the cause of an older patient's fall. And I have read it in the uh, ASAP guidelines, which I found very, very informative, that you should consider would a 20-year-old fall under the same circumstances? Yes. I found that very, very eye-opening. There is no official definition on what constitutes a mechanical fall. 
There's only one study, a retrospective study by Sean Liu, who has looked at this, mechanical faults versus non-mechanical faults. Outcomes were the exact same. Same readmission rates, same transfer rates to observations, same hospitalization rates, same mortality rates. Only one difference. The one difference was the mechanical falls were in the ED much shorter. Hmm. You know, we kind of are laughing about this lumpy rug thing. And Maura Kennedy and I did a whole podcast a few months ago on this concept of the mechanical fall. But if you haven't listened to it, just to fill you in, the problem with using that term is that it's highly ambiguous. It might mean something different to you, to me, to the patient. And also, more importantly, it narrows our focus because then we're just focused on, oh, this external thing, this lumpy rug, made them fall. And the patients, there's actually data for this, patients will tend to anchor to that too and see the cause of their falls as something very external to them. Absolutely. And, and then that can make us narrow our thought process to those external things without thinking about, oh, actually... Are they dehydrated? That's very common. Have they been put on any new medications? Or is this part of a greater falls syndrome that really needs a holistic outpatient look or a home visit or things like that to really think about it's probably not just one thing. That's the definition of a syndrome. It's probably their neuropathy, their vision, their balance, their muscular atrophy, their reflexes, their joints, their osteoporosis, all these other things. And so by just saying, oh, it's a mechanical fall, well, how many of those things that I just mentioned were mechanical? None of them, right? None of them, None of yes. Them. So uh, we need to keep a more open mind as physicians. And it's very uncomfortable to do that. I recognize it's so much easier and more in our, quote, wheelhouse to just say, oh, they tripped on a rug, they fell, no injuries on x-ray, you can go home. But that does nothing to actually address the underlying problem and help them not fall in the future. To me, that's kind of like treating somebody who has a fever with Tylenol and saying, oh, okay, their fever came down, but not actually looking to say, well, okay, do do they have meningitis? Do they have cellulitis? What is causing this fever? It's very different from the paradigm that we practice in typically to look at the underlying causes of falls or think about how we can prevent those future falls. But I think it's going to become increasingly important. And there are things that you can do. Some places have falls clinics that you can refer people to. Some places have, you know, we have a geriatrics clinic that we can refer people to. For one county, we have a home visit program that paramedics will go to their home and do a thorough holistic evaluation. Or at the very least, we can look at their medications. Another thing we're starting to do at one of our hospitals is have physical therapy evaluate patients for falls in the ED because there's evidence that that can reduce future visits for falls at 30 or 60 days by 30%. So there are things that we can do, and I think we need to start bringing them into our processes of care. Absolutely. And I have two little things that I would add to that. Number one is examine feet in older adults. And what are you looking for there? There's this beautiful little editorial, what Van Halen can teach us about the care of older patients. (laughs) Interesting. Basically, it's the small details. Hmm. And if you look at, for example, a certain disconnect between a patient, how he's dressed or she's dressed, and how the feet look, such as unkempt toenails, Hmm. looking at feet can be a clue to certain uh, diagnoses such as 
caregiver burnout, mm. the patient doesn't even see it, cannot attend to these, these details, does not have the financial resources to have it sorted, or does not have the executive function to take off shoes or whatever. I have started using this and I have a picture collection of feet because <laughs> wow. I, I use this for teaching. It's, it's really mind opening. In fact, if you want to rule out fall risk, there's the Carpenter score that you're probably familiar with. Two of the four, inability to cut own toenails. That's a higher executive function. Mm. Non-healing foot sore. So two of the four are concerning the feet. Any fall in the last 12 months and self-reported depression. So if more than one is yes, there's an increased risk of fall. And then there's another thing that was an observation or made by a Swedish, I believe, physiotherapist who observed that patients who stop walking when they're talking have an increased fall risk. Mm, what I like to do, and this is obviously not evidence-based, but I walk with my patients when I, for example, consider to discharge them and ask them questions. And when they stop walking, I know there's a risk. So many cool things you can do that you wouldn't think about. And then number seven is do not miss, quote, the other kind of fall. What do you mean by that? I'm referring to elder abuse, which is mm. pretty common and under-recognized. And what kinds of things do you look for or how do you evaluate that? There's a great review from Carolyn Schulich. It's a beautiful overview. So she gives certain suggestions. For example, are injuries consistent with the reported mechanism? Patient is not dressed for weather or mm. underweight or you observe poor hygiene. Also, we need to observe their behavior, for example, in the presence of their caretaker. And often it's elder abuse can be physical abuse or sexual abuse, but more often it's neglect. And those are, again, more subtle and difficult to spot, but important to think about. And also important to know in your country or your state what the rules are regarding mandatory reporting. And that can vary based on the cognitive function of the patient. So it's important to look that up as that's a state-by-state -state basis. I have also found it helpful to take a collateral history mm. that sometimes can increase suspicion. Number eight is screen formally for cognitive impairment. Tell me about how you do that or what you would like to do in your utopian medical center. That's something that we're doing pretty well, I believe. So altered mental status per se is another non-traditional vital sign. We assess for this routinely, and we know that altered mental status is deadly and, in fact, pretty specific for delirium. And mm -hmm. if we miss it, our colleagues upstairs will miss it as well, and that's a problem. Also, when we screen for it informally or we diagnose it informally, our performance is pretty poor, I believe. And there are validated tools, and in the States, you're using the Delirium triage screen, I believe, BCAM mm -hmm. mostly. That's mm -hmm. also um, suggested in the ASAP guidelines. In uh, the British system, they use 4AT, and we use so basically a hybrid between the two. 
We have implemented this in one of our EDs where we start with the delirium triage screen, as you mentioned, which is sensitive but not specific. And then we use the brief confusion assessment method or BCAM, which is more specific. Yes. And there's been such great research out by Jin Han and Sharon Inouye and others on delirium. So I feel like we actually do have the right tools to do this well. And we need to screen. It's not only about mortality, but delirious patients will have prolonged hospitalizations and further cognitive and functional decline if they're underdiagnosed. Absolutely. Number nine, look at patient medication to detect adverse drug events and polypharmacy. Adverse drug events are common in the ED, and there are certain clinical situations where you should think about an adverse drug event, such as altered mental status, false syncope, or bleeding. There was one study by Budnitz et al. who found that four medications or medication classes were implicated alone or in combination in about two-thirds of hospitalizations. So what were the agents? Mm. Warfarin, insulin, oral antiplatelet agents, and oral hypoglycemic agents. So something that has an impact on coagulation and something that has an impact on blood glucose levels. Mm. I think that's very, very easy to remember, and that's super common. Can you say those three again? Anything with blood coagulation. Mm -hmm. So that would be warfarin or oral antiplatelet agents or the medications that have an impact on blood glucose, mm -hmm. such as insulin or oral hypoglycemic agents. And then there are certain websites that I find helpful, for example, medstopper.com or deprescribing.org. They're very good and helpful. Finally, number 10, assess what matters most to your older patients. What do you mean by that? We need to systematically assess patients' preferences. We really need to ask what they want and what their goals of care are. I know this is not always possible with every single patient. For example, if they're unstable or if they're unable to communicate or if they have severe advanced dementia, for example. But when we did a flash mob study on this, and I hope to be able to publish this soon, we asked patients who were admitted to the hospital, what matters most to you? And I had the most inspiring conversations that I ever had with patients. What kind of things did they say? Well, I remember one specific gentleman who said, I just want to be free mm. because he, he felt imprisoned in the hospital with the monitors mm. on. And I, I found that touching. That is what matters most is actually part of what I've heard called the four M's, which is what matters, medication, mobility, and mentation. And there's a great review of that, that I'll, I can put in the references as well. But yeah. those are the things of course, patients want to be well, but what matters to them is not exactly what antibiotic you choose for them or necessarily even the door-to-doc time. What matters is that they can go home to function well, be mobile, make sure the medications are correct and their mentation, and then these things that matter most to them, which for some patients may be 
I want to stay in the hospital and have everything done. And for others, it may be, you know what, I want to have a minimal intervention and I want to spend as much of my time at home as possible. Absolutely. I have heard an update on the 4M. It's now 5M. It's mind mobility medications, multi-complexity mm. and matters most. Because these other factors, they all interact. Now, were there any commandments? Of course, we can only have 10 commandments, really. But were there any <laughs> commandments that didn't make your top 10 list? Absolutely. Uh, for example, admission is not the only option. And you've mm -hmm. done a podcast about this. Mm -hmm. And Lauren Sutherland has written a great review on it. Caregivers train. We need to listen to the caregivers as well. That's a pitfall that leads to missing elder abuse or neglect, misunderstanding goals and other problems. Don't overlook dangerous conditions because of age. I found that incredibly helpful, such as overdoses, foreign travel, malaria. Oh, yeah. Or driving. Or sometimes things like alcohol abuse or drug abuse that we yes. may not think about because we just we think about that in a different demographic. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I feel like this was 10 podcasts worth of information that we went over really quickly, but hopefully this will give a nice overview. And then for the listeners, if you want to hear more about each of these things, we've addressed them, most of them on other podcasts that you can go back and get a really deeper dive. And we will put a lot of these references and other resources in the show notes so that you can take a look there. Otherwise, Christian, thank you so much for calling in. It's really great to talk with people from other countries to see that, you know what, everyone is struggling with this. And we have so much to learn from each other. And I love that the geriatrics community is just so open with their protocols, with how they do things, with their ideas, because all of us just really want to help these patients. And so thank you so much for being here and for sharing your 10 commandments. Thanks, Christina, for having me. Thank you.